Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Zaytuna just wants to be left alone to her ascetic practices and nurse her dark view of the world. But when an impoverished servant girl she barely knows comes and begs her to bring some justice to the death of a local boy, she is forced to face the suffering of the most vulnerable in Baghdad. And the emotional and mystical legacy of her mother, a famed ecstatic whose love for God eclipsed everything. The Lover is a historical sensitive mystery that introduces us to the world of medieval Baghdad and the lives of the great Sufi mystics, washerwomen, Hadith scholars, tavern owners, slaves, corpse washers, police, and children indentured to serve in the homes of the wealthy. It asks what it means to have a family when you have nearly no one left, what it takes to love and be loved by those who have stuck by you and how one can come to love God and everything he's done to you. In my conversation, Lori Silvers discusses her transition from writing scholarship to historical fiction, how her research equipped her to give life to 10th century Baghdad in her narrative, the primary and secondary sources that informed her novel, what daily life of diverse social classes would have looked like at the moment, early pious and mystic women, Sufi training and practice, questions of race and colorism, and the complex environment women had to navigate in medieval Baghdad. She even gives us a preview of the second book in this series, called The Jealous. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Lori Silvers about The Lover. Welcome, Lori. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for having me on. This is a wonderful opportunity. I know you guys don't normally cover fiction, so I'm really grateful to uh, to be here and to have this chance. Yeah, this is this is a first for me in one way, in the sense that uh, your book, The Lover, is historical fiction, which uh, I haven't spoken to anyone, although other people on the New Books Network certainly do. Um, but it is a second for you, and you were because you were actually one of my first guests on New Books in Islamic Studies uh, almost eight years ago. It was that long ago. That. Wow! Yeah, about your your first book um, on El Wasati, right? I remember that, and I rem- yeah, that was a great interview. I really appreciated that, and a great book, and uh, definitely uh, helps me understand your your new book here. Um, so before we get into the book, we always start with a little background. Um, you're such an interesting person, Lori. I always oh. love to hear about your history. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about what kind of brought you into Islamic studies? Uh, what were some of the, the kind of issues, texts, people that were striking your interest and kind of led you down the path that you have taken? Sure. I mean, I would. I became an academic by accident. I had absolutely no interest 
in doing any of this stuff. I was <laughs> we <laughs> so Christian and I both studied under under Professor Chittick. So <laughs> so just so you know, he'll know exactly what what I mean when I say that this person sort of uh, waylaid my life and and gave me a different a different path. But I had nearly I nearly failed out of high school. I went to junior college, and I I only went to junior college so I could get a better job than the service industry job I was in. Um, and I decided I'd be a high school teacher because I really enjoyed actually writing fiction on the side and reading fiction. And I thought, okay, well, I'll be a high school teacher. And while I was doing that, I took this course when I ended up at SUNY Stony Brook with uh, Professor William Chittick for my study of another culture course so I could graduate. And this was on Ibn al-Arabi and Meister Eckhart. And apparently I did very well in that class. And Chittick said, you are going to be my graduate student discussion over and he uh, and he dragged me into the program and that that began my my career as an as an academic uh, so it was really not anything that I had decided to do uh, and I felt entirely inadequate to the task I, I know we all have imposter sy- syndrome but I I really still feel that I'm I'm a complete imposter on the field, I only sort of feel like I'm I'm not an imposter. Strangely, now that I'm I'm writing fiction, now I feel like I'm I'm doing something that that feels very real and natural to me. But I never really sort of felt like being an academic was was natural to me. Although I love teaching, teaching was was something that that was uh, that was a lot of fun and that I enjoyed I enjoyed doing. I loved working working with the students. But uh, yeah, it was it was just Chittick. Bringing that Ibn al-Arabi down, because you know, once you once you take a bite out of Ibn al-Arabi, there's there's no coming back. And uh, we worked on that for a long time, and then ultimately, uh, uh, my my ex husband went to Yale as a graduate student, and I went there. And uh, Gerhard Bovering gave me the idea for uh, to work on Abel Bakr Awasati. He said this person has never been worked on, and the uh, the background of Abu Bakr Awasati's way of thinking about God, his theology, I would argue, is very similar to Ibn al-Arabi's and was fascinating because Chittick was, his mind was blown that these kinds of ideas were going on so early. Uh, at the time, he thought, he said to me at one point, I thought Ibn al-Arabi came up with these things. He said, I didn't even know that these ideas were going on so so early on. So it was a very exciting project uh, for, for me to, to work on, a very exciting uh, project to do with, with Professor Chittick. And, and one of the things that was maybe best, and Christian, you'll know this about him, about what's so wonderful about him. He always had this idea. He said, if you can't say something simply, you don't understand it. And so he, he taught us to write in the most straightforward manner possible about the most complex ideas, which, and I, so I would say he was actually probably my first fiction writing mentor in a, in a way, right? Because he's, you know, how do you write something difficult? How, what, trying to write a sentence about how somebody's walking across a room so that 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 image is 
in the reader's mind and the idea and the feelings that the person is having and the idea behind all of it and the, the, the message behind all of that to get across the room is actually quite difficult. And, and Chittick made us write about Ibn al-Arabi and then, and then made me write about, about Wasati in, in a way that was as straightforward and simple as possible. I've even gotten some criticism on that book on Abu Bakr al-Wasati for, for being too clear. Um, apparently, <laughs> apparently it's better if it's more difficult to understand the ideas academically, more, uh, you know, more legit if you're, if you're hard to understand. But nevertheless, I'm proud of, of, of that teaching that he gave. And of course, anybody who looks at Sufi Path of Knowledge and, and his books knows that this is a, a person who knows how to synthesize uh, extraordinary com- extraordinarily complex ideas in a, in a straightforward way. Um, yeah, so so I did that, and then and then I got to work afterwards. I'm doing uh, learning a lot about theory and method, which I didn't I didn't get in graduate school. So learning that on my own. Um, well, actually, that's not true. I did get some theory and method in graduate school because I had this. I was part of a complet program where I got a lot, but it wasn't theory and method of religion, is what I mean specifically. So doing that, uh, doing that afterwards, and then uh, getting into writing writing about women and seeing what was going on with, with early pious and Sufi women. And there was just so much there, so much richness to look at. Uh, and one of the things that excited me the most was trying to grasp what people's lives had been like at the time, uh, reading these things as people. I think my, my first article that I got published was about teaching relationships in early Sufism. And what really struck me when I was reading these sayings was that I was reading the, I wasn't just reading, reading these sayings of Sufis, like these Sufi wisdom sayings, right? So I think there's sort of, there was this idea that these are Sufi wisdom sayings, but I was reading them and I'm like, these are guys teaching people. So they're not just sitting in front of people saying stuff and those people are receiving it. There's somebody asking them a question. There's somebody with a personal concern. There's a person on the path. So what does their answer have to, what does their answer tell us about the person asking the question? What does their answer tell us about the kind of community that they were in and uh, how they were living and the concerns at the time? And so from the very beginning, I think I could say I was more interested in the social history aspect of these theoretical texts I was reading. What were the sort of the practical lived experience that was inspiring these uh, these very theoretical sayings or these sort of more practical sayings about how people should uh, should function on the path. And so that always interested me. So when I got to the material on gender and women, then I was really looking at what was it like for women to practice? What was it like for women to, let's say, you know, wander from one end of, you know, of the empire to the other while lost in ecstasy, how would her experience uh, differ from a man doing the same thing? Uh, And, and are there any uh, indications in, 
in the transmitted sayings that would indicate that people around her, either the transmitter or uh, or even something that may sur- may have survived from what she said, that would indicate what that experience would have been like for people. And and so I really enjoyed doing that. And so my my piece on early pious mystic and Sufi women and the Cambridge Companion to Sufism, edited by Lloyd Ridgen, really really delves into that and looks at the at the social realities of of women's lives. And so that's yeah, so so that's sort of where I ended my my academic work. I mean, I just sort of felt like I was winding down and I was tired of of being an academic on a, in a lot of ways. And I was uh, just adjuncting at that point at University of Toronto. Uh, and then, uh, you know, funding, defunding things happened at University of Toronto. And I, I lost my job and, and I came home and told my husband I didn't have employment anymore. And he said to me, well, I guess it's time you wrote that novel that you wanted to write. I was <laughs> like, well, okay, then let's do that. And that was that. And so that required like, what do I write then? How do I write? And my first inclination was actually not to write from my, from my, uh, from my expertise. Uh, my first worry was that I was not going to be able to empathize with terrible people because you have to empathize with terrible people in order to, in, in order to write about them. Everybody has to be a human being. And so I actually wrote a really, uh, disturbing novella about an incel, you know, like who, who's the kind of person I would hate the most, <laughs> you know, it was an incel. So I wrote these racist and sexist and all these horrible things. And so, you know, and, and, and based on a, on a really horrible old man in my neighborhood, I had to say but it's a really terrible person. And, you know, and I got that out and I realized, okay, I can do that. I can write about this horrible old man in my neighborhood, you know, sort of what would have been his history. Uh, and and I was able to write about him in an empathetic way, and that gave I gave myself permission to then go ahead and do it. And it was my mother who who said to me, "Why aren't you writing about your research? Why aren't you telling a story then?" And and so she really pushed me to do that, and and so I got I got started doing that. That's great, Larry. It, it it makes sense in the way you've kind of laid out your uh, kind of intellectual trajectory in terms of. Uh, starting with this kind of list out, uh, kind of mind blowing, you know, very abstract stuff of Ibn Arabi, and then moving across the kind of uh, or becoming materialized in various ways uh, through various groups of people, and uh, and then leading to this kind of rich, uh, almost kind of historical ethnographic description of social life in, in Baghdad, it, it, it seems to make a lot of sense. <laughs> I don't know if it's made sense to you looking yeah, back. Yeah, it but, does. I mean, you know, you look back uh, and you think, okay, well, these are the things that have always interested me and that have, 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 and I've always been a very social person as well, although I'm an introvert, I'm one of those weird introvert, extrovert people. And, and so because I've always been social, I've always really loved people and, and really loved the things that drive people and, and, uh, what they say and what they do. And yeah, so it all, it all came together. And I've always felt too, oh, this is going to sound so silly perhaps, but I've always felt that writing an academic article, I, because I've always read mysteries, mysteries have always been the thing that like the sort of the, you know, the, the fiction I've read on the side and that 
writing articles were sort of like writing a mystery because you have to you have to sort of plot this as you're making an argument you're 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 plotting a story about something that's happened and you're discovering information uh, that leads you to a conclusion, except for that we give the spoiler at the beginning in the thesis. You know, we tell you who did it to start out with. And then we, right. you know, and then we show you how we figured out who did it. Uh, so, so it's sort of always, it's, it's interesting that it's, it's sort of all, you know, you don't think every, well, everything's coming to this. Now that I look back in the past, you know, <laughs> You know, so hopefully this this you know whole fiction endeavor turns out to be you know uh, you know something that's wonderful, but maybe it's a, it's another step onto onto something else, right? Who can yeah. you know? You never know with life, right? That's right. So um, you you mentioned that uh, your husband said, "Well, now it's time to write that that novel." So can you talk about when did this idea of even writing? Um, writing fiction and then how it how it kind of developed into uh how am i going to take this uh kind of rich history that i'm so knowledgeable about and kind of transform it into this kind of narrativized uh way of describing these, this this social world um can you talk a little bit about how that kind of developed for you yeah, I think you know. I mean, I think I've I've always really enjoyed writing since I was very young, um, and I took a writing class when I was eighteen because you know I wasn't hadn't gone to university yet. So, but I took a sort of a continuing education course after I'd graduated from high school on uh, writing fiction, and and oh, it was awful. I mean, what I wrote was just absolutely awful, and even and even you know forgive me, racist. I had a magical Negro in my story. I mean, just so painful. And everybody in the classroom, they were the epitome of call in, right? They very gently explained to me, you know, a classroom of people who of, 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 all races were there and they very gently explained to me what I had done and why it was wrong. And I was completely devastated, not because I had written this bad story and I was being called out, but because I had done this thing. I had written this, this, awful racist thing and that and and what and and what this meant for me about what had gone so unexamined in myself and i remember this really clearly uh what happened at the time and i stopped writing because i was so afraid that there were things in me that that needed still to be examined and attacked and that those things would come out in this ignorant way in, in fiction. Uh, so I gave up writing, uh, at that, at that point and didn't write fiction again until, until just now. Um, and, but I had always been interested in telling stories and a friend of mine recently reminded me how we, whenever we were hanging out, I was always 
saying, well, oh, this would be a great story, or that would be a great story. Or sometimes I would say, you know, because I've got an Irish background, we would all be hanging out and I would say, well, I'm going to Irish up this story for you guys. Okay. So just, it's, it's not true. <laughs> what I'm about to say isn't true, but I'm going to take something personal, something that did happen, and I'm just going to blow it all out of proportion and tell a story. And, and we would really enjoy, enjoy doing that. So, uh, so it was always, it was always there for me. It was always sort of happening. And, and I hope at this point, you know, now that, now that I'm, I'm 55, I've, I've gotten to a place where I've, I've examined uh, enough garbage that I feel, you know, I've reflected enough and gone through enough that, that I can, I can write in a, uh, you know, in a thoughtful way and not produce uh, the same sort of, uh, you know, scary, stupid white girl stuff I was doing. I did when I was 18, you know, but, you know, bless those people, man. They were, they were good to me. Uh, they were really, really good to me. And I needed to not write until, until I could, I could, uh, see the world differently. So I, I, it was a, it was very good that I stopped and, and waited, but I forgot the second part of your um, question. Yeah. Sure. Just you like how, how did, uh, this, this kind of, idea about writing a, a, a novel about this kind of time period you're very familiar with. Why write about that? Yeah. So it was, yeah. That, so this, again, it was my mother who told me to do that. She's like, why aren't you, why aren't you writing what you know about? And I was like, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. All right, mom. Thanks. And, and so I went in and I started doing that and I felt very comfortable working with, I knew it had to be, I knew a Sufi woman had to be at the center of it. And, and, uh, and so because I knew that material really well. I knew those social that, and I knew it had to happen in Baghdad because I knew that material very well. I knew enough to feel comfortable to navigate the secondary sources about Baghdad at that period of time. Uh, I felt like I knew Junaid's community well enough that to start to have, uh, that to start to build. Uh, a picture of what life around Junaid's community would have been like uh, was doable. I could I could get in there. I could do the secondary research if I had picked a different city, uh, you know, like Nishapur. I just I just don't think I would have been able to to get in there because it just it just wasn't in my imagination already the way that Baghdad was in my imagination already from having to work on, on Wasati, who was a student of Junaid. Uh, and then the way that, and then the, the, the teachings and controversies and difficulties and things that were going on at that time. And then the lives of women that I had, that I had looked at, not all these women were in Baghdad, actually, most of them were in Basra, but I didn't have a feeling for Basra the way I had a feeling for Baghdad. So, so I, I sort of brought, brought those stories in, uh, and started to, and started to adapt them in that way. So you've kind of, uh, touched at a couple of the themes. Um, can you give us kind of an overview or synopsis of the lover? Uh, you know, what, what's kind of the, uh, the main context and who are some of the, the key individuals in the narrative? Without spoilers, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's it's. I I really wanted to write uh, something. There's a wonderful there's a wonderful set of novels uh, written 
written, I think the guy is Dutch. I think he's Dutch, Van der Wettering anyway. He, but he, he wrote, he, he wrote a, a number of novels about a failed Buddhist detective in Amsterdam. Yes. So yes. Right. So that's who it was. And, um, and I wanted to write, I wanted my detective to be a failed Sufi. I wanted her to be somebody who isn't doing it well. Uh, is making all these mistakes, and partially what that comes from is a is a link to my reading of the Sufi sources, which is that we tend to idealize these Sufi sources, and we tend to look at them in a way where we don't realize that these people were not always successful uh, in in certain ways. Uh, and we idealize them as being perfected in a way that they were not perfected. I know that people are typically surprised when they read about how Sufis uh, uh, can sort of try to boast to each other, you know, my spiritual station's higher than your spiritual station, this sort of stuff, or when they do things that uh, we would think are ethically compromised. Uh, they do things that don't make any sense to us because they're, they're living in their, the, the Sufi path is, is very complex. It's not this thing where a person becomes sanctified, at least, you know, when you're looking at the sources, you're looking at the thing where, where somebody is sanctified in such a way that, uh, I don't know how to say, but that they're, they're pure in this way of, a, of an idealized purity. Uh, they, they're still living these very complex human lives. And then uh, so I wanted to take somebody who hasn't even gotten to that point yet. She's not even, you know, hopefully by the end of the series of the novel, she'll, you know, she'll, she'll re reach Nafsa Ma'enna. We'll see how she goes over the series. Uh, but that's, that's hopefully the goal. But that, but somebody who's starting out uh, actually doing it very badly. And I wanted her to be the child of one of these really great mystic women. And one of the things that I, I thought about, was while I was studying the lives of these women is what would it be like to be a child of one of these women? Like that wouldn't be such an easy thing. And, and this led to another, this, this came from another thing too, is how we idealize women and we idealize mothers in such a way that we have to look at their every move as perfection. And we feel very uncomfortable when a woman or a mother who is uh, thought of as a saint is acting in a way that's uh, not particularly loving in the way that we we think a mother's love or a woman's uh, personality uh, should be expressing itself. Um, and so that was that was one of the things I saw in the text that women were often saying these things that would come off as as quite uncomfortable. Some of the in the in uh, some of the stuff when women talk about love in the in the sources, sometimes they're talking about loving God in what sounds like a really abusive way, like they have an abusive relationship with God, you know. And they're like, "Oh God, you know, don't torture me if I if I if I don't do as you say, you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna do everything you say, God. And and you know, oh, if I step out of line, I you know, 
please, please, you know, don't torture me or do torture me because I, I need to be reprimanded. You know, whereas some other women are talking about God's love in this very confident, loving, bright kind of way, like, oh, I can do no wrong because my lover loves me. And so, and so I was thinking about how socialized women are in the way everybody, men and women and, and people, uh, you know, across the gender spectrum, of course, but that they're, but the way they're presented in the text is as men or women. And looking in this, looking in ways that come from, uh, that, that become from how they're experiencing life. So I was looking at my character's mother as being one of these wandering women uh, who has, uh, who has, who left her, who left her home and was subjected to this glorious ecstasy. She's, she's come into this situation where she's in this state of, she's, she's a a servant of God in a way where she has this ecstasy that she cannot control um, and that she's had to leave her home because of it. And she's one, she's wandering through the, through the Muslim empire and, and what would have happened to her along the way. And uh, I say this, it's, it's not, a, it's not a spoiler for anybody to imagine that that these women who were wandering by themselves uh, throughout the countryside absolutely would have been raped. There's just no question about it, and I can prove that through plenty of uh, secondary literature about you know how dangerous it was for anybody traveling, uh, let alone a, a woman traveling alone on the road. And so I thought, what would it be like for a woman like that to have a child or children? In this case, twins in those circumstances and then what would it be like for her to be wandering with these children where before she had had this luxury of wandering in ecstasy without children to watch and there are sayings there's at least one saying maybe more of a woman saying god why did you do this to me why did you give me children I thought I thought you loved me and then you gave me children to distract me from from my worship of you. You know, so we've got, you know, sayings of women saying that. And so it's like what would it have been like for her then to have these children that she didn't want and have to be traveling and how would she love them and what would that love be like? And then what would it be like to be her children and to be wandering the road with her? What would their lives have been like? And what would it be like to have a mother that doesn't love you the way you think a mother should love you? You know, how, do, how, how is that? And so my main character, she has to come to terms with her mother's love by coming to terms with God's love because she's very angry about her mother not loving her the way she wanted to be loved. She's very angry about the dangerous circumstances that she was subjected to when her mother would go into ecstatic states and would be preaching and people would crush in around them to listen to her preach in the graveyards. And she's holding onto the waist of her mother and just, and just shaking while these people are crushing in and her mother's in ecstasy and can't protect her. And her brother, her twin what was his life like? He's having to circle these crowds and watch to see if anybody's going to hurt them. And so he's ending up having to grow up 
very early and become their protector. And so how does that, how, how does that affect him? And, and what would he possibly think of God? What use would he have for God? And so that character, her brother, Teen, becomes, he's, he ends up becoming an atheist because he just doesn't even, he doesn't see the purpose in any of this. He doesn't see the sense in God, given the trauma that he grew up in. Whereas Zaytuna, who becomes the sort of the main detective, she's, she, her trauma has led her to want to both be like her mother, but also, uh, you know, in order to, in order to somehow get some scrap of her mother's love to follow her in some way. Uh, but is also angry about about all of those things, and so they they ultimately end up in Junaid's community, and they grow up in Junaid's community, and and all of the people in Junaid's community become their aunts and uncles and help to raise them, which mitigates a lot of the the harm for them. And so I got to think about what would Junaid and Nuri be like as as uncles to the children of the community. And I got to think about what would it be like, because of course people in Junaid's community had children and would the children not be allowed into Junaid's house where everybody gathered? No, of course they would be allowed. So what would that have been like? We do get inklings in some of the primary source material that there were children around and they were indicating. And in fact, you know, there's one, uh, there's there's one account in which Junaid and uh, Nuri's housekeeper Zaytuna, uh, who my main character is actually named after, she uh, her son her son uh, is thought to have have died uh, in the river, and 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 Nuri counsels her when when uh, when when she, when when everybody thinks that she's died, that that he's died and she's like no he hasn't died i know i would have felt it god would have told me and in the end nori's proven wrong uh that you know that he hadn't died but i was thinking about how how nori was counseling her um and also too i should say on the side like one of the other main characters in the book is is her son so i do have this woman being a housekeeper there and her son grows up with zaytuna and teen as as their friend and becomes the hadith scholar in the book who allows me to explore also to hadith culture in in the book but um but i got to think about like what would nori be like and and we don't have a lot on nori uh but Anne-Marie schimmel's written this lovely account of nori that's very sweet and loving and i got to sort of explore what a what a loving uncle nori would be like and how he would have guided them and maybe mitigated some of some of this and how some of the other you know the the aunts and uncles of that community uh what it would have been what it would have been like uh, for them. So it, it allowed me to explore my scholarship in all these ways that you just can't do when you're an academic, you know, because as an as academics, you know, we're, we're meant to even say, did this person even exist? You know, we have to, you have to say, well, that's not, that person may not have even existed. We're just dealing with a transmitter's account of that person. So what does this transmitter's account tell us about what the transmitter's world would have been like? And I got to just throw all that to the side and just dive in and and just imagine these worlds. It was it's really really luxurious to do that. Um, now, a lot of what you you have to do um, in kind of enlivening these characters is describe daily life. Um, yeah, of course. You know, many sources are not dealing with 
regular people, daily life, these kind of things are dealing with more elite figures and, and topics. So can you can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, uh, what what the sources that you are familiar with kind of say about daily life? And then how how were you able to kind of construct uh, kind of uh, this diverse uh, social context uh, of, of regular people? Yeah, I think, you know, the the thing, the book that that made, because I knew I could do the Sufi stuff, I wasn't sure if I could do the Hadith stuff. I really wanted to talk about early scholarly culture at the time. Um, and the book that helped me do that, and that gave me a lot of, that made me realize I could talk about the daily life of this, was a dissertation by uh, Judith Ahola, and uh, if I'm pronouncing her name right, it's called The Community of Scholars. And she she looks at Tariq Baghdad and she pulls all the social history out of it in this dissertation. And I read that dissertation and all the little details she gives, all the jobs that they had, uh, the financial woes, the difficulties, all these little things are there, the neighborhoods that they lived in. Um, and I started to get a sense of, of what Hadith scholars were like as people. Um, what would it mean for somebody? People don't realize that had. Well, maybe people do realize. I don't know. But the Hadith scholars had to do a lot of side jobs. They weren't making money as Hadith scholars, and if they were making money as Hadith scholars, it was because they'd gotten you know really coveted jobs tutoring the children of the elite. Uh, but most people, most didn't have that. Uh, and and so you know, my Hadith scholar Mustafa, he's a potter. Uh, which other Hadith scholars who are sort of more elite and have money because they have some of these coveted jobs, really, you know, some of them, some of them think he's wonderful and that's great, but others sort of look down on them. One of the things, look down on him, one of the things that she was sort of showing were these sort of categories of, of, of social status within, uh, within Hadith scholarly community, you know, and that, and that there were, the, the, some of the, some of the stories where we hear about people, sort of Ahmed ibn Hanbal and people like this, criticizing others for the kinds of food they eat or criticizing others for their wealth, you get a sense of the social tensions that were there for the Hadith community, you know, and how they were how they were judging each other. Right in the, I'm writing the second book now, and and sort of how judges would uh, judges would be critical of one another if if some judges sort of sat on a number of rugs and sheepskins to sort of put themselves above others, whereas others would sit only on a reed mat uh, to demonstrate that, you know, their humility and their commitment to the gravity of the position that they were in. Uh, and so so that really helped. I was, you know, Judith Ahola's book was really important. And of course, there's, you know, social life under the Abbasids. There's, there's a lot of, of, of wonderful books that that give that across. Uh, there's a wonderful book called uh, Continuity in in Crisis, uh, by uh, uh, edited by uh, El Sheikh and Kennedy and Austin and, and Van Berkel, and it's uh, really gives tons of of little bits of detail down to you know to coins to Kennedy's got great stuff about about 
how people get paid. How do people in the military get paid? I found out that the police were, were, you know, part of the military and how did that work? But I didn't know exactly where the police offices were. And then I had to read all this other scholarship just to find out where the police offices were, because you might think that they were at the police chief's palace because he had lots of police sort of you know, officers that were there. But actually, as it turns out, after going through so much secondary literature, I found one scrap of one mention where somebody in talking about a completely different thing mentions that they were police offices for the different neighborhoods in the round city in these arcades and these sort of office arcades that were uh, just inside the gates for the different neighborhoods. So the round city had gates leading to leading to different neighborhoods of the suburbs around it. And that there were different police offices at these different gates uh, for those, for those neighborhoods. So I had to do an enormous wide ranging amount of research just to figure out where the police office was and then figuring out, well, what, what were the different levels of police, and how do they do? I know how they get paid. Okay. So, so then I found out they could, they could actually put in a, uh, put in a a requisition of sorts to, to get money to pay snitches, which they did, right? You know, all these sort of little bits of, of information, uh, came from an enormous amount of research and, and it was so exciting, finding finding all these little things i would find one little tiny scrap of something and just be be overjoyed it would just make my my whole day when i could do things but but really the daily life stuff the majority of the daily life stuff that i got was from reading al jahiz so al jahiz you know god bless this man he really wow he I got from him like what a latrine looks like, how a latrine was cleaned out, you know, what people use to wipe their bottoms, all that stuff, you know, because he's telling in, in Book of Misers, it's satiric, but nevertheless, he's talking about the material conditions of the day, you know, talking about a guy who was too cheap to, you know, to put out the, you know, the proper thing for wiping one's bottom, this kind of stuff, or too cheap to to clean his, latri- his latrine out on the regular, and, and the problems that caused. Uh, I found out how uh, you know how often people were drinking Nabeev. You know, I just didn't know how often people were drinking alcoholic beverages back in the day, both from both wine, which was highly alcoholic, to sort of a cider that would just be sort of a regular apple cider, but and and to the degree to people were allowing that to ferment, uh, to become sort of like a you know an alcoholic cider of varying strengths, and and just how broadly popular that was to the point I was reading in some scholarship that uh, you know that that scholars were and preachers were were sort of railing against it because people were just drinking so much of it because you could also make it at home it wasn't just something that you had to go to a tavern uh, to get you know to get in a beef which is fascinating to me and sort of finding out the diversity of practice among regular folks you know that that really just like oh you know eyes wide open i know this is <laughs> this is ridiculous to say but of course muslims back then were as as diverse in their in in their practice as muslims are now people observing their their islam in these in these multivalent ways uh, some of which you know somebody could pray and then go have a glass of nabeev afterwards people might hang out in a tavern uh, you know all of these these things 
were there. People were trying to get laid all the time. I found out from from El Jahiz that the name for a uh, you know for a, a, a house of ill repute, shall we say, uh, was called a naharia. You know, a, a place for daytime marriage. So, you know, so what was sex work like back then, you know, and then you find out from the, you know, from the uh, marketplace inspectors books that the, that the, these, these naharias were, were taxed. So sex workers were paying taxes. So they were certainly part of the economy at the time and were brought into, into the rubric of the marketplace and, and, and uh, and doing that, we think of the marketplace inspector as a person who enforced morality, but he's taxing sex workers. So, and that was, you know, so this is this this really gives you a rich, rich sense of what was going on. Food was difficult to figure out what was going on with food with people who were not elite, because my my book doesn't really address elites. I'm really trying to, and I and I'd like to continue just working on. Uh, on regular society, uh, uh, sort of, sort of middle society to, to the lower classes of society, uh, cookbooks are all about elite foods. And so trying to find out what, uh, what non-elites were eating was more difficult. And so occasionally an elite in an elite cookbook, they'll talk about, oh, we got this dish from, you know, from a, from, uh, something, you know, from, from, uh, you know, a uh, a stew someone was making that we smelled who was making a stew in the marketplace and we smelled it and we liked it. So we found out about that. Now I've developed it for the Caliph, this, this kind of thing. Uh, but there's also a lot of really great social history on who ate what kind of bread and that, you know, that what kind of bread was the kind of bread that, that the poor ate and what kind of bread was the kind of bread that the rich ate. So social getting into, into social history became essential for me looking into illnesses that people would have, what kinds of uh, issues would people have uh, with their with their health, given uh, dietary limitations, for instance, if there if there were any, and were there dietary limitations at the particular time that I'm writing about? So I'm I'm writing it's the the years 907, the year that I'm writing. Um, I wanted both Junaid and Nori to still be alive, but I also was sort of writing, picking that that year as well because of the secondary scholarship I had was giving me so much on that particular period of time. Uh, and I wanted to avoid a lot of really big political upheaval. So those, there were a few years in there where there wasn't tons of political upheaval. So I wouldn't have to address that. And I could keep my stories small to, to people, uh, at that time. I got, uh, I got to talk a lot about race and shadism, uh, at the time. And this was something that really showed up a lot in the scholarship, uh, I was doing anybody who does this work knows how often uh, people are called out for their race. So, so often if somebody's black, somebody will just say, Oh, that's so-and-so the black man or the black woman. And they'll call that out. And, and you wonder, well, what else are they calling out in that? And what are they looking at? And you look at the Sufi material and some Sufi sources don't make a correspondence between blackness and sin and whiteness and purity, but a lot 
do. And a lot talk about a person, you'll have a sort of a, a story being said, oh, well, as this person sinned, their face turned black, or a black person's skin turning white as they become, as they go further on the Sufi path. Um, and uh, there's a really wonderful book called Sufism Black and White that pulls this material out and, and talks about it. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's really important to see. And Al-Jahiz, of course, talks about that and talks about the racism. And there's uh, all sorts of material that's, that's coming out now about uh, racism and shadism at that time and the kinds of insults uh, that were used. So a common insult was, you know, God, make her black or make him black. Uh, and so this it was really important to me too then at this point one of the things i wanted to do with my main characters was the woman their mother who's wandering a lot of these women were were black women a, a good number of them seemed to have been black and what would it have been like then for somebody who's at the very bottom of society, right? The black enslaved woman or the black woman was really at the very bottom of, of social society. If she wasn't an elite, I mean, we all know that there were, you know, elite women of, of darker shades at, you know, at, at, at the highest, at the highest levels. And I think, uh, one of the things that's, that's fascinating to see and, and, and wonderful to see in the sense of it needs saying is that you can have people who are living at an elite level, uh, but who are still experiencing shadism and racism at these elite levels. Like Al-Jahiz actually talks about being a person who receives this kind of racism and, and, and shadist stuff, even though he was, even though he was an elite in society and that their elite status socially, uh, does not mean that let's just say they weren't getting called out that way. They weren't being treated in this, in this terrible way that they were, that doesn't, doesn't mean that other people were not, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of, we can't say, well, some slaves were, were actually wealthy. So therefore slavery was okay. We can't do that kind of really simple math. We have to look at how complex it was. So I wanted the mother of my main two characters to reflect what, what a woman would have been like at that time. So I, I have her, uh, being a Nubian and I made her Nubian in honor of Vulnun, who is Nubian because he's, he is the one who so often tells the stories of these women. And so then what would it have been like then for my two main characters to be mixed race then to be both, to be half Nubian and half Arab and the brother has, the brother looks black. And so what is his experience and what, What's the kind of racism and difficulties that he faces? Whereas Zaytuna, she's a very dark skinned, she looks like a very dark skinned Arab. And so what's her experience and how is, and, and how does race play out too with my main character uh, and her relationship to, to her mother? So, uh, so trying to sort of look at all that required an enormous amount of research to do on the race and shadism material. Uh, Michael Mumisa was very generous in his time with me and worked with me in detail on these characters and the way that I was representing them and relationships that I was having all the way through the, through the writing of it to the very end at a certain point, he, you know, he, he writes me this, 
Facebook message saying, a drum, a drum, you have to give the mother a drum. And he sends me a picture of this drum. And I go and I do the research on looking at this and, and learning all about all of that and, and putting that in there. So this was this enormous amount of education I was doing with this and the kindness of, of, Michael Mumisa and walking me through that and making sure that I uh, did not do the thing that I did when I was 18. Uh, hello. Uh, but now doing this in a, uh, you know, hopefully in a well-informed and, you know, and in a way that's, it's uh, uh, deeply real in, in a way that, that really speaks to the, to the situation of, of people at that time, no matter who they were, uh, in a respectful way. And I've gotten, uh, some really positive feedback, uh, from, from readers on that, from, from readers who, who have an investment in those characters, just like I'm also do, I had to do a lot of research and got a lot of help with people on presentation of my Shia characters, you know, cause you know, I did work on Sunni Islam and Sunni Sufism and I'm a Sunni Muslim and I just don't have that Shia imagination of what Shias are thinking uh, when they see a particular thing. And I have uh, some some scholars, Aun Hassan Ali, he walked me through uh, an enormous amount of material to, to help me understand what was going on at the time. And, and his work is in Shiism in Baghdad at that time. So he really helped me out. And then a very good friend of mine, Sarah Shaw, uh, who's, who's a sociologist, but but also a devoted Shia, and she walked me through what my main character Amar would be thinking when he saw uh, the crushed body of a young boy uh, lying lying on a you know on a on on the dirt with the sun bearing down on him. What would be the you know I mean I knew he would be reflecting on Karbala, but what 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 were the things that would come to him? Uh, what were the the specific ideas? I didn't. I honestly, this is going to sound so terrible, but I didn't know about Qasim and that Qasim had been trampled by horses and all of this. And, and she said, you have to look at this, you know, and I, and, and so I was able to go and do this. And, and it was this, again, this extraordinary generosity, intellectual generosity of my colleagues to help me find all these things. I mean, I did all this research, sure, but the intellectual generosity of our colleagues, uh, it, it cannot be underestimated. We we are an incredible group of people who reach out to each other and help and help each other and and help each other to to learn and become better scholars and to become better humans. I would say, you know, we we really are wonderful with one another, and and I really got that from people in in this. In, in, in the writing of this book. And I, and I hope I've done, I've done them justice. I'm getting a lot of really great feedback from all the, all the, you know, the people who would, ha- who would be considered stakeholders in particular characters. Uh, so, so I think, I think I've done all right, but I'm, I'm really still open to that, that calling in by colleagues or just readers and, and to, to help me to, to, to make a better world uh, in these, in these books going forward. Yeah. Well, th- th- that might be a great time if you if you don't mind. Can you can you talk a little bit about how this project's going to move forward? So, yeah, I'm in the middle of writing the second one. My my goal was to write this woman who's a bad uh, you know, who's a bad Sufi, you know, and 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 Junaid's sort of 
you know, frustration with her that she's, you know, like, look, you've grown up in this community, come on already, you know, and he finally sort of, he kind of finally sort of gives her a smackdown that gets her started and leads her to this spiritual crisis that happens in the book while she's investigating the death of this servant boy, um, where she has to confront her, her feelings for her mother and she has to confront her anger towards God and she has to come to understand God's love, um, that, that that would be the beginning of the series. And I wanted every book to be focused on a name of God and how that name of God shows up in that, in the characters' lives and in the theologies that are informing the, um, uh, the way the characters are acting. I mean, the way my characters are interested in justice or if they're feeling love, I'm having them feel justice and love in keeping with justice, the, the notions of justice and love back in the day, not our notions of justice and love now, although I'm sure there's tons of anachronism in it. I'm trying to keep it uh, specific to the period. And so how would uh, you know, so, so, so how would love be understood at that period of time? And I wanted to do that for each book. So the next book is about jealousy. And so I'm talking about, you know, what is, how was jealousy, the theological notion of, of God's jealousy understood? Uh, what, what is the second book actually really looks a lot at masculinity and what were men like, what, jealousy was was highly valued in men even violent jealousy was highly valued in men so as a as a as a as a beautiful trait as a beautiful character trait so something that we think of as just the worst possible thing was highly valued so so how do i portray characters historically then uh in in that way while also not making them uh you know really uh abhorrent to contemporary readers um how are they how are they working that through and and do i have notions then in the sufi context of of jealousy of of showing that certain kinds of masculinity of of violent of violent jealousy that was that was thought of as a good thing at that time is there are there sufi angles on that that would be a criticism of that and i think you there and it's all right there actually so i'm sort of trying to pull in uh, pull in those issues while uh, looking at the death of a of a of a of an enslaved girl uh, that happens in the first book. Uh, many people who've who've contacted me, and it's so great. I'm getting emails from people about the book. You know, so these people who've contacted me about the book, everybody's really concerned about this this enslaved girl who's who's raped in the first book, and um, and I'm doing that in order to demonstrate a kind of violent masculinity and a kind of violent uh, uh, sense of possession. And to take a stand on the uh, the academic debate that's going on right now in our field on consent and whether or not it is possible for people to experience uh, a lack of consent, even if there is no legal or social expectation of consent. So there are some of our colleagues who believe that people could not have experienced being raped. I know that sounds weird, but people are saying that experience uh, violent sex as as violent and and uh, more than just unwelcome, but as traumatizing if there's no real understanding of consent. And so I'm trying to say, yes, you can have no expectation of consent and still experience being raped. 
Um, and I'm doing that with this particular character. Uh, and people were very concerned about her and about the, uh, the, terrible man who does this to her and everybody will be happy to know that he dies in the first pages of the second book <laughs> and he dies unpleasantly <laughs> in the first pages of the second book and it and she becomes falsely accused of it that's no spoiler to say that she's falsely accused we're very early on in the book we find we realize she's falsely accused and so how are our heroes going to uh, work work with this situation and find out who who really who really did it but you know but that's part of looking at this um you know at this structure of gender and masculinity that creates these violent situations that people find themselves in not just um not just vulnerable women but also what does it what does it do uh to men but in the context of this i'm exploring the legal system uh, so i'm i'm doing all this research on on the court systems and how courts you know made their way through i know that i did not know and maybe loads of people knew this but i did not know this i thought that a murder case because of had punishments right you read all this literature on on had punishments and religious scholars talking about what had punishments are, which led me to believe that religious courts handled murder cases because they're making laws about them. As it happens, no. Murder cases went before the police, uh, the police chief's court, and he made a decision about what he wanted to do with people, and he didn't have to take religious law into account at all. He could just convict people if he felt that the evidence was such to convict them, and he could, con- and he could sentence them in whatever way he felt. He, he felt necessary. I recall reading um, about how I can't find this now, but I recall reading about how how if a slave murdered somebody, they would get a lesser a lesser sentence because of their because of their uh, their limited social status. Um, except for that, there's tons of evidence showing that slaves were executed for murder because that's what happened. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, this this just finding out the reality of the, you know, when we read the scholarship about, well, what are the legal scholars saying and what are they arguing? This doesn't have a heck of a lot to do with what really happened. And sort of having this wonderful experience of sort of reading about how things played out in real time, which social historians do. And I want to say that, uh, and I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because my French and my ability to pronounce things and French accent is horrible, but Mathieu Tillier, he, in these generous set of emails, walked me through the plot of the second book and how I could make it and make it believable and what would happen with the court system because he's a specialist in the court system. And he got really excited about it and just and and just helped me. He's like, no, that would not have happened. You need to go this way because he's really looking at he and other scholars are really looking at what actually happened in the courts, not what are these elite texts that we're looking at. And and so here's a contribution that I hope my fiction will make to this larger conversation in our field is that we tend to look at at these very elite sources, these very elite texts, and then we think those elite texts are the representation of how things were. When what we're looking at is we're looking at some elites who have won a conversation over time. 
we're not even getting a sense of what elites of all elites thought. So we're not even get a, getting a, an accurate picture of what e, of how elites perceived tradition, how elites argued for this form of tradition over another form of tradition, or this line of thinking over another line of thinking, or these laws over other laws. We're not even getting an accurate picture of that. We're getting an accurate picture of the elites who won the conversation over time, meaning the ones who were able to get their books copied over and over and over again. And, and the ones whose books were not burnt down when libraries were burnt down, the ones whose books were not, were not worm eaten. That's what we're getting. We're not getting the, the broader picture of elites. And then we're really not getting what people's lives were like and, and what these things were, were, you know, what these things were going. I think sometimes we see these conversations. I, I love it when, you know, when, scholars talk about, you know, these hypothetical legal conversations that scholars would have, you know, that the legal scholars would say, well, what if this happened and that happened and the other thing happened? And say, well, they were just hypothetical. They didn't happen, except for that those legal scholars are thinking these things. So that means those things are thinkable at that period of time, which tells us something about what people were like at that period of time. So some legal scholar may think some really horrible, nasty thing as a hypo, as a legal hypothetical. And then legal scholars, some, some legal scholars and, uh, you know, academics will say, well, that's just a hypothetical that didn't really happen. And you say, well, no, that may thing, that may, thing may not have happened, but it was thinkable at that time. And that tells us something about what people lived. And so if the books can contribute in some academic way, I hope it's to back up to, you know, to act as a sort of a fictive, a fictional, a fictional backup to all of those scholars, all of our colleagues who were really writing about what history was really like for people. What were people doing? That that history is people, not just the winning elite texts. And so, you know, if I can back them up, I will have felt, you know, job well done. It sounds like a great synthesis of the, the many, many strands that we, you know, attempt to specialize in. So thank you for your, your efforts, Laurie, and, and in an enjoyable, readable way as well. Oh, I hope so. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm having so much fun and I just really hope people read it and they have fun too. I just, I'm so, feel so gratified that people are using it in classes, you know, and, and I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by, by all of this and the, the graciousness of my colleagues and friends and everybody in, in helping me to, to promote the book. I mean, if people weren't retweeting it or, or sharing it on Facebook, I would not be getting it out there. And, and everybody is just, and everybody's just been amazing. So, you know, sometimes we, we look at ourselves and, and we think, oh, you know, this colleague, that colleague, and we get into this bad space. But, you know, I think, I think we also just have to sometimes just celebrate how amazing the, the Islam group is and how amazing the scholars of, you know, these our academic, uh, our, our academic colleagues are and, and what we do for each other, the ways that, that we back it up and how we, how we really show up for each other. And, and, uh, you know, so I just want to, I'd like to end on that note. Yay. Yay. All of you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Lori, for, for writing this wonderful book and thanks for making the time to talk about it. Thank you so much, Christian. That was my conversation with Lori Silvers about her wonderful new historical novel, The Lover. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. I hope you'll join us again soon.